Welcome to The Original Doll. I'm your host, James Rodriguez. On The Original Doll, I unpackage music with the people who create it. We go behind the scenes and learn all about these amazing artists and creatives who bring the music that we love. And at the same time, we help out charity. For more information, go to the website, theoriginaldoll.com. While you're there, join my Patreon community. Big shout out to my Patreon patrons. You all rock. And as with every episode of The Original Doll, any audio recording ripping stealing is strictly prohibited in every country in the world. So if you see anything leaked, please report it to the webmaster. Don't forget to join me on Instagram, the.original.dial, and rate the show and tell your friends about it. My name is James Rodriguez. This is the Original Dial Iconography. Today, we are joined by a very, very multi-hyphenate individual, a Chicagoan as well. He is a songwriter, producer, musician, A&R, and so many other things. Today, we are joined by Michael J. Thank you so much for being here today on The Original Doll. Thanks for having me. Now, what I like doing is going back to the beginning and asking our guests, when did music come into your life? Well, very early when I was a kid, because my dad bought our family a jukebox. And so we had a jukebox in our basement in Skokie, Illinois. And I mean, um, this was in the 1960s. And I just fell in love with with records based on that machine, you know. And so uh, I got a subscription to Billboard. Very young person to have a subscription to Billboard. And uh, I used to buy all of these songs that were on the Hot 100 every week. The new songs, I'd get the new ones every week that came out. And I would keep them in the jukebox in the order that they were on the chart. <laughs> so, so my family always had current music in the house. And I was kind of the music director of the family. It was kind of weird. But, uh, but you know, I, I just fell in love with it. And I, and I started collecting records. That was my thing. I was, I was a record collector. And I used to memorize all the names that were printed there on the label. Uh, you know, it wasn't just the artist name. It was uh, those little names in parentheses under the song title. Those were the songwriters, you know, and, the, and then there was the producers and the publishers. And, and I started to get to know who was who. And, and it's funny because um, a lot of times the same songwriter names kept coming up for the songs that I liked. And that's when I realized you could have a career as a songwriter. Music is something that I loved. I always say, like, I'm a liner geek. I grew up in a record store, so I would go I would be in charge of the top 100 and moving the CDs like, oh, this week is another one. And other times I'm like where did that song go where it falls from like number 20? And I'm like, did I miss it? It's like, no, that just fell off the charts. I would always feel so horrible for these people, but I was always in there. And I let people know early on on the show, I said, so many times people say, James, I checked out artist A because I loved that one song. But when I bought the album, I didn't like anything else. I said, look at the producer, look at the songwriter, look at those names and follow them. And nine times out of 10, they would say, I really like this artist B, it was the same producer. And so I said, you go through that. And I wanted to create this, the original doll, unravel that packaging because there's so many people it takes to make these songs and these albums, but also you know who you're inspired by. You know what those, you don't even, for somebody like you, it's like, should I have a song called Twist and Shout? Is there what, you know, automatically there was a song called Twist. You know what I mean? There's also that knowledge of it, but exactly. it's great. I'm sure you like me then would see the logo, the label, and you knew automatically, oh, that could be this artist, or they're working with, you know, it's Columbia, it's this. That's how I fell in love with it. Anytime I opened up a new box, I was like, oh, Warner <laughs> Brothers, I like them, Motown, I like them. 
It's like that. Absolutely. <laughs> For us, it's the same as like stamp collecting. We love the labels. every time. So then at what point then did you go from being an admirer of music to going, this could be a job, this could ultimately pay the bills? At what point did that kind of the business end of it come in? It it was very early on, but I was, you know, you know, struggling with what to do. I, I knew I wanted to be in the music business, but um I hadn't written any songs yet and I wasn't uh, comfortable being a performer. I never wanted to like be the artist and go out on stage and do that. So I was trying to figure out what role I would play in the music business. And, um, you know, this was, I was doing this before I went to college, you know, so I, I was in high school and I was like building these, these little AM radio stations in my basement that would have a radius of about three blocks <laughs> with stuff that I would buy at Radio Shack. <laughs> you know, it was just stuff that I would buy at Radio Shack. And then um, finally, when I got into college, uh, as a freshman, I was the music director of a college radio station. And so I started working with the um, college radio promotion departments at all the major labels. And I started to get to know the, the people that work there. And uh, they had college radio has their own like billboard magazine. It was called CMJ, College Media. Mm-hmm. And so our station reported our playlists to there. So we got a lot of perks from the record companies, too. So yeah, it, it was kind of fun. It was like a, a, a student level version of what the music industry was. And so I, I found myself really liking being on the radio side. But then when I graduated, uh, I got a job as an A&R guy for Curtis Mayfield, which was also in Chicago. Kurt, Kurt Tom Records was his record company headquartered in Chicago. And so I loved doing uh, A&R work for the label and stuff. And uh, but, you know, there weren't very many record companies headquartered in Chicago. So eventually I realized if I was going to be a player, uh, mm-hmm. I had to move to either New York or L.A. So I chose L.A. And in the in the early 90s, I'm sorry, the early 80s. I don't want to think I'm that old. <laughs> in the early 80s, I moved to L.A. And um, I couldn't get an A&R job in L.A. I tried. I knocked on every door, every record company. And so I was out there jobless. and. Um, trying to find something to do. And I, I just stumbled across this place called the Los Angeles Songwriter Showcase, mm. uh, which was a weekly event that uh, BMI sponsored for songwriters to come and anonymously present their demos to A&R people who were looking for songs for their artists. Uh, so I would just hang around there every week and I, I'd meet a lot of uh, up and coming songwriters at the time, people like Alan Rich and Diane Warren and people like that. and. Um, I, I just kind of fell in love with the art of writing songs and, and collaborating with, with these people and getting to know songwriters. It was, it was a very different thing for me. And so I started writing songs. And uh, that kind of led to my first publishing deal, which was with Famous Music, which was the publishing division of uh, Paramount Pictures. And so being a, a writer at Famous Music, I had first access to all of the films being produced at Paramount Pictures that needed songs because they already owned my publishing then, so that was an mm-hmm. issue so one of the films that happened to be in production uh like a few months after i got my deal was top gun <laughs> so you know it was a new movie tom cruise wasn't even a big movie star nobody knew if it was going to make any money but they asked me to uh present some songs and do some songs for the soundtrack and i did and you know i guess you know as they say the rest is history <laughs> We all know Top Gun now. We know the soundtrack now. We know, you know, Gloria Estefan. We know these songs now. But at the time, to your point, no one really knew the impact that that not only would have as a film, but also a soundtrack. Because 
I and we all know that you know most of the songs from that that soundtrack. But I think what's amazing is you're like, I got dibs on this. You're like, okay, let, let's go, let's go this route. Like to me, it's awesome because. I feel like that was also the time where studios, people were putting money behind a soundtrack because they could see what that soundtrack could do. And it would still be years. I interviewed uh, Alan Rich with about Run To You and Bodyguard, how he's like, we were at the height of soundtracks. Like people, you could make money easily going, here's one song. Let's just put it on there. And it's kind of fun to hear you go from the radio side, the marketing side. And then all of a sudden now it's like the film side. It's this is not a traditional approach by any means. <laughs> like you're like, I know, but I think it's it's kind of it's awesome. But I also think it allowed you more experience with different things because working on a soundtrack album, let's say, or even a song is vastly different than working on one artist's, you know, development oh, or yeah. debut project. Definitely it is. So I want to go to, there's, we got a ton of questions for you. And I kind of wanted to go in this kind of sort of chronological order because everyone, there's going to be part two and probably part three, because you all, (laughs) Michael J's, his discography is extensive. We got questions about Five Star, The Slightest Touch from 1987, which for those who don't know, peaked at number two in Ireland, number four in the UK. Our question is from KJ in Spain. James, please ask Mr. Michael J about making this iconic song, The Slightest Touch. Shep Pettibone did a remix single version of it. Can you ask Mr. J if he knew ahead of time as a producer, as a creator, that Mr. Pettibone would be remixing the song? Also, how did he feel when it got covered by Louise and then Steps? Well, a lot to unpack there. Well, uh, of course, I, I knew Chef Pettibone was going to do it. The label told me that, and I was a big fan of his, so I was excited to hear how it would turn out. And to be honest, and I think everybody would agree with me, he saved that record, man. It, his, his remix made it a hit. You know, because prior to that, it was really just an album track. And, um, you know, that's, I don't know if that's a fault of mine or, or not, but I mean, we wrote it the way we wrote it. We, I produced it the way, you know, I heard it. But um, Chef Pettibone just heard a way to take it to another level. And uh, I will forever be grateful to him because that's the version even I like to listen to now. And, and of course, that's the version that Steps did. Thank God. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, I, I love what Shep did to it. And um, I'm, I'm just forever grateful to him for that. Because the great thing is we're able to talk to you who was creating music, you know, singles. This was in the 80s where there was the whole marketing plan. Nowadays, they're like, uh, I think my song's coming out tomorrow. And a remix producer comes in the next day kind of thing where the, the artist may be like, I didn't even know. You know, it's a vastly different thing now. But back then, when you were pressing vinyl, when you were releasing CDs, cassettes, these things were planned ahead of time. And so you've been somebody who throughout your entire discography, you've had many of your songs covered by multiple artists. You know, Mandy Moore, all of these other people have come in and taken a part of it. So how does that make you feel when it's especially where artists can kind of take it and make it their own? Because there are times where people are like, I didn't even know this was a cover, you know, and I always go, it's great to have new ears on older songs. It's okay that we don't know every song ever made, but for you to hear what you originally had worked on, then to get years later, some other people covering it. How does that feel for you on the creative end 
win. I mean, financially, it's always it's always a great thing. Well, you know, but creatively, it's not just for my own songs. I'm just a fan of covers, period, of any covers, mm-hmm. because I just love the fact that songs can live on through through for future generations uh, with different versions. Uh, you know, Luke Combs has Fast Car out now, and I know a lot of kids that don't even know that's a cover. <laughs> so, you know, but I, I love when stuff like that happens, um, especially to my songs, of course. Um, a lot of people didn't know uh, Slightest Touch was a cover. You know, you have to be mm-hmm. of a certain age to, to know that song was with, with Five Star. So I've talked to some young kids that thought Steps was, you know, the originator of that. And I'm like, nope. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I, I love it when that happens. Of course, it's, it's good financially for me, but um, I just like that the songs can uh, have an extended life through, through other generations. And the great thing is, and for those who don't know, Steps, which was released in 2021, peaked at number nine of the UK singles downloads and peaked at number three on the iTunes pop songs and as well as charting in 13 other countries on iTunes. So clearly the song made an impact. And I think to your point, I always love when, and we're going to talk about in this next project you worked on, there was a cover on somebody's debut album where so many people said, James, you've pointed out that a lot of these debut albums, there's usually a cover on there. I said, yes, very much so. We talked to Steve Lunt developing Britney Spears and everything. He's like, it made the most sense. Throw a cover on there. If you're missing something, get that cover in there or give people something that might be familiar to them. Britney did, you know, the beat goes on. Uh, many people didn't realize that was a cover of a song. And <laughs> and I was just like, but I go, there's so many times. I mean, there are some times where I'm like, that's a that's a cover. There are some songs where I, I don't even know. I'm like, that's awesome. Others, I'm like, and if you like it, check out the original. With <laughs> with Fast Car, I got people saying, can you please talk about that guy that sing, sang the original version of Fast Car named Tracy Chapman? I'm like, it's a woman, first of all. like, <laughs> And they they may just be reading the name and just do that. But I think it's kind of fun and to also have success. That's the other thing to have success with this. And there's steps at a high level by coming back. The anticipation was there, but also if the song was terrible, it would not have done what right. it, what it did. So well. we have that. Now I want to hop now that we just talked about a cover on your a, a project that you work on this, the amount of people that have sent in, comments and letters of love for Martika's album. If you're a fan of certain artists, make sure that you join me on Instagram, the.original.doll, because on there, I break down in so many different videos the impact these artists have had when they first came out and continue to do so now. We have Jose from Peru. James, love when you honor artists. Can you please do a breakdown of Martika's debut album? It's the best debut album ever made. Michael J, ask him how he started working with Martika. It was the best debut album of all time. Sunny from Singapore. James, please let Michael J and Martika know they made an album that I played all the time as a kid. It makes me think fondly of my time as a child. Thank you for creating that moment for me. Justina from Sweden. James Rodriguez, I love you talking about music with music makers. Martika CD, I played a lot as a kid with my sister. She died recently, and I decided to play the CD every year on her birthday to remember. Can you thank everyone for creating those memories that I'll always cherish? Wow. Wow. That's that's emotional. That that makes me that makes me feel really good here in my heart. Let me tell you that. Um, I, I mean, I'm sorry for her sister, but wow. I, all of those comments, I mean, I'm just, I'm stunned because, you know, as a fan of music, I don't know that I would 
qualify that as the greatest debut album ever made. I mean, I have a lot of my own personal favorites, of course, but I, I'm, I'm just really touched that so many people think that of, of that album. And, and thank you all so much for, for saying that, because um, obviously we put a lot of hard work into that. And we hoped at the time that, that it would reach people. We, we never realized how big it would become, but um, I'm, I'm always happy to know that, you know, people were touched by it and moved by it. So thank you. Well, and the great thing is, and what I want to do is we have questions, comments, love of the every track that you worked on there, but can you talk a little bit about how you got involved in that? Pro- like, how did Martika come into your atmosphere, your, your, <laughs> your, your, your realm of creativity? Uh, my sister, <laughs> my, my sister is Lori Margulies. She works in, um, television, live, she, live television events. She's worked on the Oscars, the Emmys. I mean, she's, that's been her thing her whole life. Uh, and she started on a little show back in the eighties uh, called uh, Kids Incorporated. Um, I think it was on the Disney channel. And um, she was just on the production crew or the staff. I, I don't even remember what her role was on the show, but you know, she was, she was very young and new to the TV industry. And that was one of her first jobs. And I remember um, I had to go and meet her for lunch uh, in Hollywood. And so I went to the studio where Kids Incorporated was being filmed and they were running a little behind schedule. So I had to wait for them to shoot this one scene before we could go to lunch. And so I'm just sitting off to the side and they're shooting a scene with Martika singing a song. And I was just blown away. This, she was like 16 then. And I couldn't believe how talented she was. I mean, it was like incredible. So all I could talk to my sister about at lunch was how can I get Martika in the studio with me? I wanna do some stuff with her. And so my sister introduced me to Martika's mom and uh, Martika's mom and I just discussed doing a few demos. And uh, so we got in the studio and I, I started putting her on some of the songs I had written, like Bounce Back and stuff like that. And and the, the Alicia song. Out, yeah, the demos came out really good. And so we all just decided to start, you know, shopping them around, playing them for some record companies. And, you know, it was not what we expected. The, I mean, the overwhelming um, amount of interest. I mean, we ended up with like four or five labels in a bidding war. <laughs> just, yeah. So it was like, it was stunning. I mean, and I think it was because of the time too, because you had Debbie Gibson, Tiffany, uh, Paula Abdul, you know, Kylie Minogue, all those people. It was that time for young female pop singers doing dance music. And so, and you know, we were looking for the label that wanted to have their own Paula Abdul. And, you know, there, a lot of them were looking for that type of artist too. So it just all fell together really, really nicely. And, you know, we ended up settling on uh, Sony Music with Columbia Records. And, um, you know, we, we made the record. It was one of the first records at the company that was made under Tommy Mottola's uh, presidency because... Well, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, Tommy Bentola had just become the president when Martika became a, an artist there. I always say I never compare, oh, this artist did as, but I always put in reference to, at the time, Martika is basically going against Debbie Gibson, all these people, because they're like, and it's that new sound. And I think what I liked about the Martika Sonics was that that freestyle, that that to me, the edgier and the flair to it. And that's why I think that, I mean, growing up in Chicago, it, whether it was house music or freestyle, I was like, that's the music that I love that I connected to because I always felt like there wasn't a lot of 
glitz and glamour on it, that it was like rooted in some soul. And so a lot of people were messaging me. We have Carlos from Costa Rica, Original Doll, the show. This song is my favorite song, if you're Tarzan, I'm Jane, of Martika of all time. Can we learn how it made and who put order of the CD? So we talked about sequencing. So first of all, a debut album, the opening song, how did you all decide what it was going to be? Because I would have thought, like, throw the first single at the beginning of it. So can you talk a little bit about how that came to be, that kind of sequencing of it, and anything about If You're Tarzan, I'm Jane? Well, the record company had the right to choose what the singles were going to be. But I had the right to sequence the album. So the two weren't really connected. Um, obviously, I thought Tarzan would be the first single. That's what I wanted. I, I, I love that song, too. It was such a fun song. Uh, I mean, today, I think the lyrics would be considered cheesy. You know, <laughs> it was, it, you know, it was a fun time. You know, we were young. We were, it was the 80s. <laughs> and um, I just, I just loved the concept right, right from the time that uh, Greg Smith and I wrote it. Uh, Greg Smith was the keyboard player in the band Animotion. Obsession. I think Remember I knew that? that. Yes. Oh, yeah. yes. So actually, I think when Greg and I started writing the song, we were thinking about it for Animotion. <laughs> but then it ended up being a Martika song. Martika even recorded the demo of it. And then we thought, why not just keep it in her package? <laughs> it's so it's so good. So this is this is what I've loved is so many people have their different favorite Martika songs. And I think it's a testament to the work that you all created that it wasn't, oh, there's that one good song from the whole album. This is, I got all these, these letters of love from so many people. Up next, we have Cross My Heart, Johanna from Bulgaria. James, love that you love freestyle. Please ask producer Michael J about making Cross My Heart. Ask him when he knew the songs for the album were going to be singles. Was he surprised or did he know ahead of time? And this is something where in the 80s, it was a totally different experience than now because somebody could at the 11th hour, we're going to release this single. Nope, just kidding. Tomorrow we're going to release this other song. So how early on did you know? Like I said, it was the record company's position to choose the singles. I mean, they were paying for everything. They owned everything. So, you know, I mean, they consulted with us, but at the end of the day, uh, they were going to release what they felt that they could promote properly. And I sequenced the album. I put Tarzan first because I wanted them to know that we wanted that as our first single. And you know what? There was a time, there was a there was a sh- small moment there where it looked like it was going to be a single because they actually did a remix with Jelly Bean Benitas that nobody's ever heard, but it's brilliant. It's never come out. And I don't know why that decision was made, but, um, you know, they ended up going with More Than You Know as the first single, but which, you know, was okay. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's just, uh, your question was actually about Cross My Heart, though. Cross My Heart was one of the earliest songs. When I, I told you when I first met Martika and we started doing demos, uh, Martika was, wasn't really a writer. I mean, she was 16. She was on Kids Incorporated, which was a show where they actually just did cover songs of top 40 hits. Mm-hmm. So she really hadn't been a songwriter. She hadn't been doing any writing and I, she didn't have the skills to be a songwriter. I mean, she event, those eventually evolved in her. She became a very good songwriter, but in the beginning she wasn't. And so the songs were written for her and I was just writing a bunch of songs uh, and having her demo them because she was a great singer and I loved how she sounded on my songs. And before she had a record deal, my publisher would then take the songs that she was demoing and shop them around to other artists which is mm. how Cross My Heart ended up with Eighth Wonder and Tracy Spencer, because my publisher placed those songs with other artists because Martika hadn't had a record deal yet. And then 
ironically, once we got Martika signed to Sony, it's like Tommy Mottola didn't even realize that uh, he was releasing the song on Eighth Wonder already. And it was part of Martika's album. So he let us do it on the album, even though he knew it, it was going to appear as though it was a cover of Eighth Wonder, which it really wasn't. Martika's was the original version. Uh, they just came out in a different order. <laughs> that is hysterical. See, this is this is the stuff that like we we as listeners of the music would know because to to your point, if somebody looks at well, this was released 1987, but Martika's was 19. What you know what I mean? Your part's like yeah, well, it must a, have been the cover, and you're like no, 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 that's not. It, that's took, not it takes story. a long it takes a long time. Even today, everything in this business takes a long time. I mean, from the time I met Martika doing the demos, shopping the record deal, signing the deal, making the album, releasing the album. There's about a two or three year period there. Don't forget to rate on Apple Podcast and Spotify and tell a friend. It's not like it is today. Today, mm. you know, the demos become the records. That's what gets released because demos are so, I, I don't even know what the difference is today between a demo mm -mm. and a record because technology is so good. You know, I can record a master in my living. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but back then you didn't have Pro Tools. Nobody had home studios. You always had to book a commercial studio to record anything. And so when we did the demos, we booked a cheap studio and did it an eight track or 16 track. But when we did the album, we re-recorded everything. Every, we started from scratch on each song at a major studio, a 24 track studio right. with, uh, so she, she re-vocaled everything. So the demo mm. versions and the album versions are completely different performances. But I don't know that she was 18 then. She was probably 17. There's probably a mm. year and a half apart between the demos and the, the album versions. It's so crazy because the amount of people that messaged me and said, James, I've loved you deep diving into Britney Spears's career and how they were really trying things. And I mean, Steve Lunt talked about it where Britney was sent to full force. She was sent Eric Foster White and all over the place. Let's get you to cover a Jet song that... There were so many things figuring out that development side of it. And a lot of the songs were like, okay, these were made. Let's have you hop on here and go. And when we learned, when we talked about, you know, Britney's second album, Oops, I Did It Again, that several of the songs were actually also recorded during the development of the album. So people are like, wait, she sounds a little bit different on these songs. It's like, well, that was recorded in 1998, released in 2000. And the other songs, they're like, vocally, she's so different here. It's like, well, those were recorded in 1999 and 2000. And it's great that I get to talk to you, who was the creative person with her. Let's get these demos up. But then also the label's like, we love these songs. We're putting it on this album. And you're like, whoa, wait, what? <laughs> this is her album, like, which is kind of fun. So now we have, as we go on, we have More Than You Know. We have Travi from Ireland. James, oh my God, your video about More Than You Know reminded me of Martika's whole album. I loved every single song. Can you ask how this song was produced and where your love of freestyle came from? And when you make freestyle music, do lyrics come first or does the music come? And what was the most difficult part about working with somebody who is new to the industry? Oh, well, um, when we did More Than You Know, uh, Martika wasn't that new to the industry anymore because mm -hmm. uh, that was one of the first songs that she actually wrote on. Uh, you know, I, like I said before, uh, I was just putting her on songs that were being written for her. And as that process evolved, she started to get an interest in, in writing songs and she had a lot of great ideas. So we set up a writing session um, with my friend Marvin Morrow and I. By the way, Marvin Morrow and I wrote The Slightest Touch. 
So, so we had already had the success with five stars. So Marvin and I worked a lot together and I said to Marvin and I said, I said, let's bring Martika in on this writing session because she has a lot of good ideas and uh, maybe we'll get something really interesting out of it. So Martika came over to Marvin's studio and the three of us just organically start like you do at any songwriting session, even today, you just get in a room and bounce around a lot of ideas. Marvin put a groove up on the, on the, with the synthesizers and the drums and uh, Martika started, you know, coming up with some melodies, just singing some gibberish and stuff. And eventually I, I, I would hear some lyrics in there and I, I'd throw the lyrics in and, you know, just it's the really was the three of us in a room just coming up with ideas organically. And that's how that song came about. Frank from Chicago, another Chicagoan, said, can we give some love to the vocals of Martika on More Than You Know? Her vocals are the most versatile in any other song she's ever done. Congrats to everyone who made that song. So people still love, and I was always so shocked when I would hear kind of those runs or those additional things, because to me, it once again wasn't, here's the note, boom, boom, boom. You know what I mean? That there was always some extra vocal layering. That's what I really loved about Martika's catalog, just like the way I love Janet Jackson's catalog, that vocally, there's always something interesting happening where it's not the anticipated, this is what you expect sound. So I love that song. Now, I, always, I always encouraged her to experiment vocally because... You know, it's great when you're recording stuff. If, if, if she does something that you don't like, you just delete it. But if she does something that's great, you know, you keep it. And sometimes I've found, especially doing ad-libs, uh, you can get a great ad-lib performed in the wrong part of the song. And, and with technology, you could just isolate it, copy it, paste it to another part of the song where, where it fits better. I've done that a mm -hmm. lot, too. <laughs> That's the part that I love is I like that you kind of were like, let's get experimental. Like, let's try these things because you have nothing to lose. No one else is going to hear any of those. Those, I mean, nowadays things leak left and right. But at the time, it was just like, try it, have fun. And if it doesn't work there, to your point, let's just put it over here. Let's just move it around. And that's the brilliance of the production of it. And ha But also having that ear to go, it doesn't work here. Let's not delete it. It might work in this other section, which I think is the brilliance of your creativity. Now I want to hop to Toy Soldiers. John from Israel. I'm trying to read this as it was sent to me. James Rodriguez, your deep dive into music I love. It's a breath of fresh air. You mentioned Martika before, and I know that producer Michael J. and Martika have been interviewed about this song, but I would love to give you an original doll take on it. When was this created in the process of the album? When did you know there was something special about it? And when a song gets sampled, can you ask Michael J.? Does he have to approve of it? And are there times where he wouldn't choose to approve something? Please let us learn about this whole process. Toy Soldier has a special place in my heart. Another one, Connie from Scotland. James, I want to send some love to the people who made this song. 
It was there when it needed me the most. People go to upbeat songs. This had an impact in my life forever and for always. The song stuck with me. They created one of the best songs of all time, sending thanks to them from Scotland. Wow. <laughs> well, thank you all for, for those compliments. That's that's wonderful. I mean, Toy Soldiers has been a very special song for me in my career, obviously. Um, how it started, you know, <laughs> it's crazy. But, you know, about halfway through Martika's album, I mean, I realized we were making a dance pop album because mm -hmm. we were inspired by all the dance pop albums that were out at that time. Like I mentioned, Tiffany and Debbie Gibson and Paul Abdul and stuff. But at some point I felt, what can we do to make Martika stand out from the pack? You know, what, we need to give her one song, one moment on the album that's going to stand out and be like radically different from anything else. And so... That's what I felt the album needed. I didn't know what it was going to be yet, what song it was going to be. But one night, um, I remember Martika and I went to see a band at the Whiskey. It was some friends of her were in a band. And the band, were, the band was called the Toy Soldiers. <laughs> it was like a punk rock band. What? And I remember going in, listening to like the first couple of songs just to be polite because one of her friends was in the band or something. And then I said to her, I said, I can't stand this anymore. It was a terrible band. <laughs> so I said, I'm going to go out and wait. I'm going to wait for you outside. I can't listen to this anymore. And I, and I went out on the sidewalk and I'm walking back and forth under the marquee of the whiskey that said the toy soldiers appearing here or whatever. And I just started humming this melody in my head. Da, 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 da. And at some point I looked up at the marquee and I said, toy soldiers. <laughs> so when Martika came out, and I drove her home. I said, I have this idea for a song, but I have no idea what it means. I don't know what the song is about, but there's this chorus thing that's in my head now. And I, I sang her the chorus in the car and she was going through some issues with a, a friend of hers who was having some drug problems. Mm. And she thought that would be a good song to write about that and about how, why people fall into drugs through peer pressure and stuff like that. And and so it was her idea to turn it into, to give it that concept. So we got together the next day and actually really sat down and, and wrote it for real. We got together in the studio and uh, I sat down at the piano, started playing some things and she started coming up with some lyrics for the, for the verses and stuff. Uh, Cause I already had the chorus I had written it at the whiskey, <laughs> but I didn't know what it meant. So she had this great way of making it mean something. And one of the things I loved, which is which was uh, that she did, was um, the opening line was, I extended the invitation, but I didn't know how long you'd stay. Who was the you? I didn't understand that. But the you she's singing to is the addiction. It's in the abstract. There's no person. I, I extended the invitation, but I didn't know how long you'd stay. That is how you become addicted to something. So she's singing it to her addiction. People's mind right now, they're like, <laughs> Yeah, nobody ever really got that. It was maybe a little too abstract. But, you know, when I tell people that, it's like, wow. That is insane. What I remember, what set apart. So I loved the song. I loved it so much that I had the 45, the seven inch, and then I put it on a cassette tape because I couldn't find a cassette tape of it anywhere. And I would play it all the time. And I just remember it was like, I didn't know as a kid what the song was about, but I knew I liked it. And what I loved with this, it was almost like this onion because as the years went on, it had a different meaning at different parts in my, in my life. And I think that's the great part about storytelling is you have this, but I also love that 
on a debut album, she had that that maturity to even put it on because I feel like most labels nowadays, you know, if it were a teen bop label, let's say they might not go, we're not going to talk about, a de- do you know what I mean? They're going to be like, no, 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 we're, we're, we won't talk about that. And I feel like that's what separated Martika once again from the pack, because you still had a song on there that sonically fit with the album, but it was a very mature song about social issues but you just blew my mind the abstract i I can get a lot more into it if you want i mean there was um i noticed uh, martika had this great bubbly personality that we've all seen and everything but um at night she would like have a different personality she'd be like deeper into her thoughts a much darker person at night Mm -hmm. and this was a dark song and so um i felt i wasn't getting the right performance out of her recording it just in the afternoon, like we recorded the rest of the album. So what we what we decided to do was record her vocals at midnight, surrounded by candlelight. We put candles all around the studio because she just had a different vibe at night. So that was the only song that was recorded at midnight. <laughs> Stop. Mind. The amount of people that are going to message me going, my mind is blown. This, because once again, this... These songs are like decades old and yet we're learning so much about it. And now going back through and re-listening, going, this is kind of, this is kind of amazing to learn these things because it's the production side that had I not talked to you about, like, I would have never known any of this and I'm just, my mind is blown away, but it also speaks to you being collaborative going, there's something that she's not giving at this point, but you picked up enough on her energy going, let's try this. Let's try this later. So a lot, a lot of people always ask about the children's choir. Yeah. That was an idea I had based on a movie called The Lost Boys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland, the vampire movie. Remember that one? Oh, yes. Um, there's a song in that soundtrack called Cry Little Sister that has a children's choir in it. And when I heard that in the movie, I thought that we that's what we need in Toy Soldiers, a children's choir in the chorus. <laughs> this is... <laughs> And Martika, because she was in television on Kids Inc. with all her friends, she knew all these really talented kids. So she recruited the choir. They were all her friends, 16-year-old So it's like, kids. Fergie, let's go. Let's. Well, yeah, Stacey <laughs> Ferguson was on the show with her, who became Fergie from the Black Eyed Peas. And so she was one of the people in the choir. And Rasan Patterson was in the choir. A lot of big people who started out as kids. And so they all came in. They were all her friends. And they were perfect. They were perfectly in tune and... It was, it was an amazing experience recording them. This is the part that's, I mean, it it blows my mind because once again, having a children's choir, it there was this like, I don't want to say haunting sound, but it was so different and also drew me in. And I remember because playing side one, side two, A, side B, side, I remember thinking at no point because there were times where I'd play an album and then I'd get to a song where I'm like, this kind of abruptly stops that this still fit in with with the the sequencing of it but here's the thing here's the thing all of these kids were working actors as kids so they were all members of sag and aftra so this was a union session and (laughs) so all these kids had to have union contracts and because they were underage i had to have a studio teacher on in the studio with us and we had to take breaks every like 25 minutes so they could do their lessons it was weird for me because i'm not used to that in the music business that's like being on a film set or something but and, and Sony Music was getting all the bills for this session. And 
And they were like freaking out, like, what is Michael J doing? He's got like a choir now. <laughs> they thought it was like Brian Wilson going nuts, like good vibrations or something. You know, I mean, it was like by the time the album came out, Sony was so upset with me on, on Toy Soldiers because I spent more money on that than anything else in the, in the album. And they didn't even want to talk about it because it wasn't a dance song. It didn't sound very commercial. It didn't sound like something you'd hear on the radio. They had no interest at all in pulling that as a single. And so after More Than You Know came out, they wanted to do I Feel the Earth Move as the next single. And I thought, you know what? Everybody loves Toy Soldiers. That's the one song everybody keeps talking about. That needs to be the single. So I went behind Tommy Matola's back and I pulled my friend Mark Benish, who was the head of promotion for Columbia. Mark Benish, and I said, is there anything you can do? Can you spike it on a few uh, test, test market radio mm -hmm. stations or something just to see what the reaction is? And he did it. And the reaction was so huge that it sort of forced Sony to release it as a single. This is where your brilliance and background in radio, how it's like, if I can't get it that way, I can at least go, these these markets, they're the one. And at the time, radio, huge, like radio's pushing this. They like this. Smart. See, this is, <laughs> these are those other things that we we wouldn't know about. So then you mentioned that the next song, by the way, that I wanted to talk about was I Feel the Earth Move. Don't forget, the way to support the show is joining, telling friends about this at my Patreon, theoriginaldoll.com. And I do have official The Original Doll merchandise, as well as merchandise from Britney Brand and more. Go to theoriginaldoll.com for more information. You mentioned that the next song, by the way, that I wanted to talk about was I Feel the Earth Move. And we had Donovan from Finland. James, you talk to people about making their debut albums and mention sometimes there's a cover song. Can you please ask why this song was chosen? And did they hear anything from the original artist and writer of one of the finest covers of all time, Donovan Finland? Well, you know, Kylie did the locomotion. Tiffany did. I think we're alone now. It was sort of a trend. It was a thing. You had to do a, a dance version of an old classic if you were going to do an album at this particular period. So um, I just remember there was a small earthquake in L.A. one day and uh, Rick Dees was on Kiss FM and he started playing Carol King's version of I Feel the Earth Move. And it's it sounded so dated to be on Kiss FM because it was a really old fashioned production. You know, it was like from the early mm -hmm. 70s and this was the 80s. And it's like it sounded weird on Kiss FM to be hearing the old Carol King version. And I thought, what if there was like a modern dance version of this song? You know, and there was an earthquake in L.A. They play it all day long. <laughs> So, <laughs> but here's the great thing because, um, you know, I told you I, were, I wrote Tarzan with, with Greg Smith mm -hmm. from Animotion. So obviously I was good friends with the band Animotion. I, I've worked with them on a lot of things. And uh, so I had them come in. They are the band on the tracks for I Feel the Earth Move. And, and here's, this will blow your mind. If you listen very closely to the, to the fade out, you know, right at the end of the record as it's fading out, Don Kirkpatrick, the guitar player, is playing the same licks he played in, in Obsession. So, Michael J., thank you so much. I'm going to be giving everyone the contact information on how to follow your website and everything. Thank you so much for being here today on The Original Doll. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was, it was a pleasure.
Michael J. will be returning, so send in those questions. Go to theoriginaldoll.com, submit those questions, and why that is your favorite song. Thank you again. Don't forget to rate this on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. I'll see you on the flip side.